0: Let's read the scriptures together, dear friends. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together, shall we, dear friends? Our Father in God, we are delighted to be in one another's presence tonight. There are so many other places we could be. And Father, we confess to you uh, the weakness we feel just from being tired. And it would be nice on one hand to be at home in our warm pajamas. On the other hand, Father, we know that we need the benefit of Christian fellowship. We need those occasions when we lose ourselves in adoring you in worship. We need your word. And so we come to this place, O Lord and God, and in your kindness, you meet with us and you talk to us. And Father, on behalf of brothers and sisters connected to our congregation, we... Come to you in prayer, asking, O Lord and God, that you would display compassion to our very dear friends. We pray tonight, O God, for our brother Jeff McKenzie and ask as he's traveling, and I don't even know where he is right now, Lord, that you would grant him endurance and strength. As he seeks to comfort his mother, come alongside her and care for her. We pray that you would give him wisdom to rightly discern the situation and to make the appropriate decisions he needs to make. We pray, oh God, that while he's away, you would sustain Carol and the kids and whatever we need to do as the church to come alongside our brother and sister and their family. Lord, um, help us to be quick and eager to do that. We're thankful to know that his mother knows you, and loves you. And we pray and ask, O oh Lord and God, that, that Jeff could reinforce the beauty of the gospel to his mother there. Father, we pray for Mary Bailey, and we are thankful that she's been able to have this procedure. We are thankful, Lord, that it has gone well, and we pray that you would continue to restore her to full health, that she would be able to see better than she's been able to see for a long time We are thankful to know, O Lord and God, that your children are in your care. No one can ever snatch them out of your hand. And while we rejoice in gifted doctors and nurses, many of whom do not know you, we're thankful that we can benefit from them and from their skills. Continue to restore Mary's body. We pray for Elisa and ask that you would bring her to a full and complete recovery. And now, Lord, with this kind of monkey wrench thrown into things, uh, it's time for us to come alongside them and help them make this move. And so, Lord, uh, may many step forward and may we facilitate this on behalf of our brother and our sister. We ask that you would strengthen her bodies and restore her to full health that she could be uh, back engaged with us in fellowship again. Father, we pray for Dean Walker. Father, we miss Dean very, very much. What a model servant he was. Never drawing attention to himself. Always quick to serve the fellowship here. And Father, we wish he was here. We confess. We wish he was here. On the other hand, we do acknowledge and respect his decision to care for his mother. When a man refuses to care for his family, you tell us in your word that he's worse than an unbeliever. And so we ask, O Lord and God, that you would give uh, Dean strength and energy. And even as he watches his mother deteriorate, give him peace of heart and mind and strength. And, Lord, he needs work. And we pray and ask, O Lord and God. We know that it's a difficult time. It's a difficult time everywhere. And many, many wonderful people are are without jobs at the moment. We do pray, O Lord and God, that you would provide for Dean. And maybe maybe that will occur in some surprising way. Maybe it will occur in a traditional way. But nonetheless, we pray, Lord, that you would come alongside him and care for him. May he know that he's not been abandoned by you. May there be other believers there who can support him and uphold him and strengthen him and encourage him. And, Lord, we pray now that you would be with us. Many of our people are ill, unwell. We ask that you would touch their bodies and strengthen them, Father. We miss them desperately when they're gone. Bring home safely our dear brothers who are traveling. We know that not only do people in our congregation travel for formal Christian ministry, they travel by virtue of the job you've given to them. We pray, O Lord, that you would always sustain them and care for them. Give them endurance, protect them, oh God, from harm and cause them to be eager to speak the gospel when opportunities present themselves. Thank you for bringing Lee home and his fruitful ministry in Arizona. Now we ask, oh Lord, that for the time we have together tonight to engage with these questions that you would come and talk to us, come and speak to us. We all acknowledge, every one of us, the profound limitations that mark each one of us. And so, Father, we always, always, always want to crush arrogance underfoot. Help us to be able to laugh at each other. Help us to be able to acknowledge our shortcomings. And may we always, always, always surrender ourselves to the authority of your word, whether or not it perfectly fits with our own rationalized views of the way things ought to be. We love you, Father. Please now come and talk to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I was teasing Philip a little bit because when he came in tonight, the first thing out of his mouth was, I thought Jared was preaching tonight. (laughs) So you're going to get Jared. You're going to get Jared. You're going to get Jared. You're going to get Jared for three weeks. Okay? So starting two weeks from tonight, is that right? Two weeks from tonight, Jared will be back on with Habakkuk. We'll go for a couple of weeks. We'll have a big winter banquet together. And, uh, and then we'll take a couple weeks off. And before you know it, we'll be back first of the year in January. And uh, we'll be beginning a new series on marriage from the book of Ephesians. So that's kind of where we're going. Since we conclude this short series, So Great a Salvation Tonight, um, I do want you to know, dear friends, um, with a wink and a smile, that it has not been my ambition to transform you into card-carrying Calvinists, right? To persuade you to plant tulips in your garden, (laughs) to convince you to seek out and assault every Arminian you know with a five-pronged club, okay? It has been my agenda for all the obvious weaknesses to help you think rightly about how it is God saves sinners. And to the extent that Calvin or anybody else gets this right then I want to be like them. Only because being a Calvinist then at that point means being a biblically informed Christian. John Calvin is to be respected. He is to be loved. He is to be admired as one of our great fathers in the faith. He he didn't get it all right, but we respect him like we respect Athanasius and Augustine and Luther. Luther. And yet, as Calvin himself would assert, friends, the sacred text alone, not a man, not a confession of faith, the sacred text alone is the final and ultimate source of truth to which we must always bow our minds and hearts in absolute submission. Karl Barth said in his biography of Calvin, and I quote, Be they never so devout and faithful, those who simply echo Calvin are not good Calvinists. That is, they are not really taught by Calvin. In other words, they've not caught Calvin's heart, Calvin's passion, Calvin's perspective. A heart always, always, always bound and determined to be a servant of the word. It does no good to replace a Roman pope with a Protestant one. I want you to be a Calvinist only insofar as Calvin corresponds to the word of God. And I hope, all teasing aside now, I hope you understand this. And I hope you never, ever, ever doubt that about us here. Will there be Arminians in heaven? Yes. Will there be Calvinists in heaven? Yes. And there will also be Arminians and Calvinists in hell. Because theological accuracy on every point does not qualify a person for heaven. What qualifies a person for heaven is the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to your account. That's what makes you fit for heaven. The righteousness of Jesus Christ that is imputed to you. You say, so, well, so then why, why even bother? And the answer is very simply because it is God's word. Because knowing the truth honors him. Because the effort, beloved, all by itself is an act of worship. God is not glorified when people say about his word, well, you know, doctrine, it doesn't matter. That is the insult of Indifference. We give our attention to it because it is his doctrine. We're not asking you to memorize Wayne Grudem. We are not asking you to memorize John Calvin. We are not asking you to read Millard Erickson. We do this because it is his doctrine and his theology. Now, to be sure, all Christians will go to heaven with varying degrees of wrong doctrine. But that's not the same thing as saying, so why make the effort? Honest ignorance is not the same as spiritual indifference. And, of course, even worse than this is willful obstinacy. I see this is what the Bible says. I just refuse to believe it. That, beloved, that, beloved, is an exceedingly dangerous place to be. Because at that point, the issue is not scholarship. At that point, the issue is lordship. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And my point is simply this. Your ability to do either of those two things in large part is dependent upon what you know to be true about God. All of our worship on Sunday mornings and all of our worship on Wednesday night is dependent upon what you know to be true about God if it 's not driven by that, then all it is is manipulated emotion, and frankly god 's not interested in that. Our worship is a response to who He is, so that 's why we do this okay here 's the first question, which I think is an incredible question and 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 because of that, friends i 'm going to take some time to answer it. Um, Well, not comprehensively, but perhaps a bit more thoroughly than uh, was even intended by the question. I'm not altogether certain I understand it, but I get the sense that it is very important. What are some tools for sharing the gospel without the traditional sinner's prayer? The traditional sinner's prayer is this. You want to become a Christian? Repeat this prayer after me. Okay? Okay? And, of course, I've been doing this long enough. If you put me in a room with 50 children, I can get them all to repeat the sinner's prayer after about 30 minutes. That's not because I'm so good, uh, but I can get them to repeat a prayer. Now, let me just come at this a little bit anecdotally before we get more specific, and uh, I know I don't do this often, so just indulge me a bit. I grew up attending an Arminian church. Buses came around the neighborhood to pick up children, and my neighbor asked me to get on the bus. I got on the bus. People there loved Jesus Christ. They were driven, the church was. They were driven by the desire to see people brought to faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore, through the process of my own spiritual evolution, I have never, ever questioned the motives of the ministry there. I went forward at a meeting at summer camp when I was 10 years old. Why? Because nobody else did, and I felt bad for the preacher. He did his message, and at the end, he did the typical altar call and invited people to go, and nobody came. And, you know, the pianist just kept doing her thing, you know, and and and, and, and come on, come on, nobody's coming. I'm 10 years old, nobody's coming, nobody's coming. And finally, he said, if you want to be a real man, in fact, the word he used at that time is, if you want to be a he-man, some of you are old enough to know what that means. It's like saying, you want to be a real stud, you'll come forward and accept Jesus. So, as not to allow my masculinity as a Hispanic man to in any way be questioned, I was the first one out of my seat, boom, right up there. At the prompting of a well-motivated older gentleman, I dutifully repeated a prayer, at the conclusion of which I was assured, you are a Christian now, do not ever doubt your salvation. But I was not a Christian, I was decisionized. I did not understand my guilt before God. I did not, therefore, understand the work of Jesus on the cross. So how can a person exercise saving faith when, one, he has no idea why he needs to be saved, and, two, he has no sense of why Jesus is the right object in whom to place his faith? I went to church for a couple of years after that, principally because that's where all of my dearest friends went, and then eventually stopped going altogether. When I was 20 years old, and I won't go into all the details now, when I was 20 years old, everything that was important to me was shattered to pieces. And it was right around that time a friend called me and said, uh, Art, why don't we go back to church? He had been away himself, and, and so we did. And it was during those days, sitting under the college pastor at this church who was a faithful expositor of the word of God, it was during those days that I realized why I needed a Savior, who this Savior was, and what he had done to save sinners like me. Now, friends, I cannot point to a moment in time as I think about my conversion. I could not tell you. I cannot even point to a specific day. All I know is that somewhere in the third year of my my third year of college, in the springtime of my junior year, I found myself repenting of my sin and trusting in Jesus Christ to save me. I do remember standing up at a college retreat and declaring that I was bound and determined to follow Jesus Christ. But of course, you understand that didn't save me, it was merely a manifestation that I had been saved. So as I now think about making the gospel known to people, even my own children, and tonight I think what I'm going to do is keep going back and forth between talking to people and how it worked itself out with my own kids. Um, There are a couple of questions that I work hard to keep in mind. Four, in fact. Number one, does this person that I'm talking to, do my children, does this person understand what salvation presupposes... Does this person understand what salvation presupposes? You are a creature designed by a creator to whom you are presently accountable. That's where it has to begin. You are a creature designed by a creator to whom you are ultimately accountable. That's how Paul begins his sermon in Acts 17 on Mars Hill. This God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ruler of every single one of us. And he is the eternal judge that you, like all of us, will one day face in judgment. And just like you, just like me, we all stand before this God guilty. You have repeatedly broken his laws, intentionally and unintentionally. By the way, little P.S., I never, ever, ever, ever spend any time trying to prove the existence of God. I just don't go there. I don't. I don't. I'm convinced in their heart of hearts and in their conscience they know there's a God. That's why they spend so much time trying to convince themselves that there isn't one. I make no effort to prove the existence of God. You know why? The Bible never does. The Bible never, ever gives us arguments to prove the existence of God. I just let the truth out of the bag and let it do its work. Does this person understand what salvation presupposes? You are a creature made by a creator to whom you are presently accountable. And by virtue of your choices in this life, you are guilty before him. That's the first question. I want to make sure that that piece is in place. Consequently, with my children, like I think I told you last week or a couple of weeks ago, first catechism question they ever learned from us. Who made you? Over and over. Oh, who made you? Catherine, who made you? Jonathan, who made you? God made me. That's where it has to begin. Second. Second question. Does this person understand the consequence of sin that necessitates salvation? Does this person understand the consequence of sin that necessitates salvation? We call people to salvation. But, my dear brothers and sisters, you cannot afford to assume that people know what this means, especially given many of the distortions that are all around us related to this very issue. You say, Friend, you need salvation. You need to be saved. And what they're thinking is, From what? And you need to belly up to the bar and say, From sin. You're not going to get anywhere if you find some other way, huh? You need to be saved from a bummer of a life. You need to be saved from unhappiness. You need to be saved from alcoholism. You need to be saved from sickness and disease. You need to be saved from unemployment or from poverty or from an unhappy marriage. This is something we have to make very, very plain in our gospel conversations. And friends, you can do this with affection in your voice. You can do it with kindness. You don't have to be mean-spirited about it. But it's something we need to be very plain about in our gospel conversations. From whom must you be saved? Did you hear that question? From whom must you be saved? And the answer is not from the devil. The answer is not from bad people. You need to be saved from God. The eternal condemnation that will be executed by him. Paul says this, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. The gospel called in the book of Acts, flee from the wrath of God. So if you've laid out a portrait of God that doesn't include wrath, for what other reason would people come to Jesus Christ? You've got to invent other ideas. He'll make you happy. He'll satisfy you. He'll hold your family together, whatever it happens to be. So does this person understand the consequence of sin that necessitates salvation? Third, does this person understand God's provision of salvation? And since you hear that from me every single Sunday and every single Wednesday night, I'll just state it in one simple phrase and we'll move on. That means... The means of salvation is the substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They are not ready to be saved until they understand the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ where the Father pours out on Jesus all of His wrath against sin, propitiation, His burial, and on the third day, His resurrection. That is the means of salvation. Do they understand those gospel facts? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3. And four, does this person understand the necessary response to this provision of salvation? What that means is you must call them to repent and believe. Those are the words used on the pages of the New Testament. Repent and believe. Repent and believe, not ask Jesus into your heart. What in the Sam Hill does that mean? I mean, even my little daughter would say to me, Dad, I mean, isn't isn't your heart about that big? What is it? Ask Jesus in your heart. Where do we come up with this stuff? Let's use the language that the Bible uses, friends. Don't ever be afraid to use the language that the Bible uses. Now, you may need to explain what the Bible language is, but figure out what it means and use the Bible language. Repent and believe. You must turn away from your sin. You must turn away from every other means of attempting to earn God's favor, and you must trust solely in the salvation accomplishments of Jesus Christ. This and this alone is what affects salvation in your life. Repentance and faith. Turning from sin, turning to Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Whoever believes in him will not perish. Do they understand what perish means? And have eternal life. But as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. This is what the New Testament repeatedly calls people to. And beyond this, no method of ensuring this experience is established on the pages of the scripture. Now here's where we get into trouble. Because we want so badly to give people assurance of salvation... We have tied the experience of salvation to some external deed. Coming forward during an invitation. Raising your hand at the end of a sermon. Repeating a prayer after someone else. Signing a card. Moreover, what we want to be able to say, and and, and I mean well-intentioned, friends, but what we want to be able to say is 15 people were saved last month. But I think that in many cases, this has only served to give unbelievers a false sense of salvation. Because they've tied the experience of salvation to some external act. See, I went forward in 1993. Even though I really never did understand the gospel and I've lived like a pagan ever since. See? I mean, good night. What did the Church of Jesus do before Charles Finney invented the altar call and the Second Great Awakening? how are people saved i've had people ask me that very thing you didn't give an altar call how are people going to get saved you may, in the book of acts peter preaches a gospel and guess who the altar call comes from not the preacher comes from the congregation what must we do when the spirit of god works you don't have to give people a formula So what happens? A crusade comes to town, an invitation is given, and the next day a friend says to me, Art, did you hear? 3,000 people were converted yesterday. And I say to him, with all due respect, brother, Portland would be an entirely different town if 3,000 people were authentically born again. And then a year later, a minuscule percentage shows even the slightest interest in attending church. Those people are not converted, friends. They've been decisionized. They've not been converted. So then what do we have to do? Where does that theology take us? I mean, we don't dare say that they're not converted. So we now have to create a third category of people. We have Christians, we have non-Christians, and we now have carnal Christians, people who are really Christians, but for all intents and purposes live like pagans. And nothing could be more contrary to the New Testament. Beloved, if a person is authentically converted... And tied to that is the praying of a prayer or any other kind of external expression that prayer is not what saved them. What saves them is their faith alone in Jesus Christ. That prayer, assuming it is genuine, is not faith itself. It is merely a manifestation of the faith that has compelled it the only external act that we call people to is baptism. Read the sermons in the book of Acts. Come, believe in Jesus, be baptized. Not as a means of contributing to their salvation, but as their public expression of identifying with Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And when someone says, oh, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, but they refuse to be baptized, it's a pretty good indication that they've not yet been genuinely converted. I'm not saying that there are not Christians out there who don't know that they ought to be baptized. I'm sure there are many like that. What I'm saying is when a person knows they should and refuses to, I I think we're looking at someone who probably has not been authentically born again. There is no such thing as an unbaptized Christian on the pages of the New Testament. So what I'm trying to tell you, friends, is it isn't your job to grant the experience of the assurance of salvation. It's your job to make clear the gospel and the appropriate response to it, repent and believe, repent and believe. And then you take those people to the Bible and show them what the Bible says with regard to the fact that they've now repented from their sin and trusted in Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to tell you, beloved, is let God grant them assurance. Because if God grants them assurance, you will not need to keep doing it every three months. Let God grant them. And God will, God will. Now, as parents, and for those of you who are not parents, um, cut us a little bit of slack here. As parents, you see, our difficulty is we want to relieve our children of all anxiety. We don't want them wondering, am I really a Christian or not? Am I really a Christian or not? But you see, Christians in earlier generations understood much better than we that the experience of having that anxiety relieved by God via his word is far more transformational than any quick assurance we may give to them. Let them stew. Let them struggle. And let God be the one who grants them assurance. He loves them far more than we do. So we talk to our children all the time about the gospel Some, sometime I'd, li- I'd love to spend a Saturday uh, part of a Saturday talking about how to do family devotions uh. Uh, we talked with our children, and, and you, you can ask Missy. She lived with our family for an extended period of time. She was all a part of it. Every night after dinner, we'd get up on the bed or get up on the couch. We would talk about the gospel all the time. We would sing the gospel. We would pray together. This is what the gospel is. This is what, how you must respond to it. And then when by and by our kids would come and say, Daddy, I, I, I want to be a Christian, what I would say is, You know what, honey? I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Are you believing in Jesus? Are you trusting in his death, burial, and resurrection? Yes, I am. Well, honey, let's look at what the Bible says about the people who believe in Jesus. And we would look up these passages, maybe over a few nights together. And I would pray right there with them, Lord. Please help Catherine to see that she's a Christian. Please help Jonathan to see that he's a Christian. And then I would say to them, you know what, honey, when you become a Christian, you need to be baptized, don't you? And with both of them, when they eventually said, Dad, I'm a Christian. They said, I need to be baptized. Why do you need to be baptized? Because if I don't, I'm being disobedient to Jesus. Now, at what point in the entire process were they converted? I have no clue. I have absolutely no clue. I remember Catherine coming to us one night, having read a particular psalm, absolutely convicted to her core that she was guilty before God because she'd, she'd lied, and it was a psalm about lying. At what point in that process was she converted? I don't know. What I do know, beloved, is that God, God's grace always evidences itself. And what's more, Mom and Dad, what you need to keep in mind is that very few people are converted in an instant. So let the Spirit of God with the Word of God do its work. And also keep in mind that a person may, in fact, be converted before having absolute assurance of it. So these four questions govern my thinking. Does this person understand what salvation presupposes? Does this person understand the consequence of sin that necessitates salvation? Does this person understand God's provision of salvation? And does this person understand the necessary response to this provision of salvation? And by the way, not every person is in need of the same amount of explanation regarding these questions. For example, somebody may come from a very well-taught, conservative Roman Catholic background. They may have some of these pieces already in place. I need to know they understand the answers to them. I need to figure out where they are through the process of talking with them. Um, not have a pre-packaged set in mind that I've got to take you through all of these steps. I just want to know that they can, um, that, that I'm getting the proper responses to those four big ideas. Okay. So, mom and dad, what you want to be do, what, what you want to be doing all the time is talking about the gospel over and over and over and over again. You want to be singing the gospel. You want to be doing that all the time. And let the gospel do its work. And don't be so concerned to relieve your anxiety that you want to be quick to relieve theirs. Okay. All right. Next question. If God has decreed everything, how do you account for sin? Did he decree sin? Does predestination to salvation also mean predestination to hell? Are you a dual predestinationist? Now, what I've done with several of these questions, friends, I've tried to see how they fit together and kind of smoosh them together. And instead of doing 10 tonight, doing, you know, five or six. Is God sovereign over everything? Let's begin there in relationship to this question. Is God sovereign over everything? Even over the calamities we experience. Listen to the Bible. Amos chapter 3. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Isaiah 45, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. The Bible does not portray a dualistic universe, dear friends, where the good things come from God and the bad things come from the devil. An earthquake hits, a Planned Parenthood clinic crumbles to the ground, and the typical American evangelical says, look at what God did. Another earthquake hits. First Baptist Church crumbles to the ground and the same evangelical says, look at what the devil did. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? What did Job say to his wife? I mean, you sing that song. The Lord gives and the devil takes away. Who does Joe blame? God's sovereignty is absolute. It is comprehensive. Exodus 4. Who made man's mouth? What makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Why does one child have an IQ of 180? and another child an IQ of 90. The Christians of the New Testament certainly lived in the light of God's overarching sovereignty. When speaking as something as basic as his travel plans, Paul says to the Ephesians, I will come back if it is God's will. To the Corinthians he wrote, I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. These are not simply pious cliches, dear friends. They are statements reflecting Paul's wholehearted submission to God's comprehensive sovereignty. Sometimes the sovereignty of God allows for such things. Other times it does not. Do you realize that there are occasions when Paul wants to go to a particular town to communicate the gospel to unbelievers and God says no? Acts 16, Paul and his companions traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word of God in the province of Asia. But when they came to the border of Mysia and they tried to enter Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. Proverbs 19, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Proverbs 16, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. How about Jesus in Matthew 10? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. A sparrow falling to the ground. You want to talk about meticulous providence? I mean, it's a slam dunk, friends. You have to be predisposed against it. What does God say about himself? I am God and there is no other. My purpose will stand and I will do as I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that I will do. The psalmist says it like this. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Paul in Ephesians 1.11, God does everything after the counsel of his own will. So the God of the Bible is a God who possesses a sovereign will that is absolute, it encompasses everything, and it is inviolable, it cannot be undone. Now, has God decreed sin? Turn to Genesis 45. Genesis 45. This is the Joseph narrative he has been separated from his brothers who many many years before sold him into slavery they want to kill him they think better of it they figure they can make a few bucks off him so they sell him into slavery by and by they go home they misrepresent his death to their father joseph is taken into egypt where through the purposes of god he becomes prime minister now that part of the world is experiencing starvation so those Brothers from Canaan now make their way to Egypt to see if they can find food, and who do they find themselves standing in front of? Joseph, without knowing it. Look at verse 4, chapter 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, ah, well, sorry, verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, Ani Yosef. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. By the way, and I don't mean to be a modest friends, the word here, to come near Nagash, is used in many places that talk about sexual intimacy. And there are some who suggest that at this point Joseph is showing to his brothers that he's circumcised because nobody else in Egypt would have been. Come near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. They sold him into Egypt. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. You sent me here. God sent me here. You sent me here. God sent me here. Nothing like God allowed it. Verse chapter 50. Now, let me just show you one more passage and then we'll talk a little bit about this. Joseph and his brothers are reconciled. It's a wonderful reunion. They enjoy many, many more years with their father Jacob in Genesis 50. Jacob Prior to Jacob, uh, Genesis 50, Jacob dies. He is buried. And now his brothers begin to think to themselves that old guilt begins to bubble to the surface. Uh, Now with daddy gone, we are toast. They don't understand grace at all, do they? Um, Notice... Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. It was your evil. You did it. Nobody made you do it. You did it. But God meant it for good to affect salvation. Now, Friends, what Joseph is saying is this, God in his providence used your sin to accomplish his purposes. What he does not say is, since God in his providence used your sin to accomplish his purpose, your sin is no longer sin. Oh, it was sin. Sin for which they would be accountable to the living God. Just because poison may be used in a, as a part of medicine that heals doesn't mean that it ceases to be poison. And in the same way, just because God's providence uses sin to accomplish righteous ends does not mean that sin ceases to be sin. Joseph is not denying their sin. Joseph is not denying their full responsibility. The only thing that he's denying in this passage is that he is in a position to mete out judgment because of it. What Joseph is saying, beloved, is this. You acted, God acted. God didn't make you act the way you did. You didn't make God act the way he did. You acted freely, God acted freely, and somehow his purpose was perfectly fulfilled. And, beloved, that is exactly what happens with you every single moment of every single day. I I, I have a phrase that I like to capture this in. It goes like this. What God has decreed in eternity, humanity in time will demand. What God has decreed in eternity, humanity of its own volition will demand in time. So they are fully and completely responsible. You say, well, Art, so what about sin then? Has God caused it or has God allowed it? And if I wanted to be impertinent, I would say, yes, If I answer the question logically, away from the Bible, there's the Bible. If I was to answer the question logically, my answer is an unqualified, absolutely positively, yes, God decreed it. But I don't like advocating answers on the basis of logic. The most honest thing I can tell you from a careful consideration of the scriptures is that this specific question is one that the Bible itself does not seek to answer comprehensively. The important issue in the scriptures related to sin is this. What purpose does it serve? What purpose does it serve? And dear friends, you can always be certain of this, that at the end of the day, the purpose it serves, the purpose sin serves is the greater manifestation of the glory of God. That's why Luther said about Satan, never forget that he is God's Satan. Satan only does exactly what God has decreed. That's why Satan is always angry all the time, because all he does is serve to advance God's glory. Now, does this mean that I affirm double predestination? Well, I suppose it depends on what one means by this. What does it mean that God chooses to save some? It means that he chooses not to save others. Who makes the choice? God makes the choice. God chooses to save some. That's everywhere in the Bible. God chooses. What does that imply? There are others that he doesn't choose. Is that how you define double predestination? Then how could I believe anything less than that? What I don't affirm is a view of double predestination that is defined by equal ultimacy. You say, what is equal ultimacy? For simplicity's sake, equal ultimacy ultimacy affirms that God works in believers and unbelievers in exactly the same way. That is to say, for the elect person, God changes his heart so that he can and does believe. Regeneration. Equal ultimacy then says, for the non-elect person, God changes his heart so that he cannot and does not believe. God works equally in both the elect and the non-elect, working faith in one and working unfaith, unbelief in the other. I do not see that taught in the scriptures. According to his own good pleasure, God chooses to save some and not all. For those who come to believe, it is because God has done something in them that he doesn't do in all. That's why we don't do 17 verses of just as I am and plead with people and work on their emotions to come forward. When God's Spirit does the new birth, they come. They come. They want to come. You can't keep them away. For those who refuse to believe... It's not because God worked unfaith in them. It's because God leaves them to their nature. And choose they do. They choose. They choose freely. Always according to their nature. Which is always against God. And that's altogether righteous because we begin with the presupposition that all are guilty. No one is ever kept out of heaven who really wants to go there. I remember a long time ago, somebody asked me, are you a Calvinist? And just before I went, yeah. What do you think that means? God keeps people out of heaven who really want to go there. I said, well, then I most certainly am not a Calvinist. Nobody has ever kept out of heaven who really wants to go there. Okay, so don't ever think that there's someone who really wants in, but they're not getting in because they weren't elect. Okay, once a person... How are we doing on... uh, mm, The person who asked this question isn't here. (laughs) Once a person has chosen to follow the Lord, been baptized and wanders away from the Lord, for example, marrying unequally yoked women... I don't know if that means marrying many unequally yoked women, getting divorced or committing adultery. Have they truly lost salvation if these people meet the Lord before realizing the mistake they made? Does the love and grace of God not extend to the lost brothers and sisters? How does the blood of the Lamb apply to the lost brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, I'm going to answer this question the way I think um, it was intended to be asked. Do I affirm? Do I affirm once saved, always saved? Come on. Yes. Yes. Once saved, always saved. If a person is authentically born again, he or she will never fall away from the Lord fully and finally. Though obviously inconsistent as we all are, the pattern of his or her life will be to obey Jesus Christ, to persevere in faithfulness. We're going to see this at the church in Smyrna on Sunday morning. What I do not affirm is once prayed, always saved. Is it possible for a person to repeat a prayer after a pastor and not be genuinely converted? Absolutely, positively. That was me. Is it possible for a person to be baptized and not genuinely converted? Absolutely. This was me. Is it possible for a person to be engaged in ministry for a season and then walk away from the gospel? Yes, his name was Demas. His name was Judas. Why? Not because they lost the authentic experience of salvation, but because they were never truly converted. Is it possible for us to be fooled? Paul was fooled. When Jesus said to the disciples, one of you will betray me, did they all go, Judas, I knew it. (laughs) Not me, not me, not me, not me. Judas must have been the most trustworthy. He kept the money bag. You say, well, then how can we know if anyone is truly converted? Answer, time and the devil will tell. Time and the devil will tell. Give a person enough time and enough temptation, and what is real will almost always become plain. I don't doubt that when we get to heaven, beloved, there will be some surprises. Surprises at who is there and who is not there. But even this side of eternity, what is real will nearly always evidence itself given enough time and enough temptation. So we say when we look at a person, are we seeing what the Bible says are the evidences of the new birth? There are evidences of the new birth. Do you know what they are? Are we seeing those evidences of the new birth? So that when people have asked Laurie and me about the conversion of our own children, what you've heard us say, if you've asked us that, is, is well, they have professed faith in Christ. And we do see evidences of God's grace in their lives. And, of course, when parents see this, it exhilarates. My, uh, my, my, my daughter calls me and said, Daddy, I was, I was reading in Revelation today and wanted to ask you about this. Or my son calls and says, I was sharing uh, 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 the gospel with a guy on the university campus, and this is what he asked me. What do you think I had to say? So you see those little things, and you think, well, you know, maybe, maybe they really are truly converted. But what you've also heard us say is this. We will only really know for sure as much as anyone can, when they get old enough to live on their own and freely make their own choices. And we want to let that happen earlier than later. We want to prepare them for independency as early as we possibly can. We are intending to produce an adult that will have impact for the gospel in this world. And so that's why in our home we always had unbelievers. Some of you have heard the story, huh, about these Friday nights we would have once a month. And we said to Jonathan and Catherine, you can have as many people as you want. We'll provide all the food you can eat, all the drink you can drink. One ground rule, no believers. And our home would be teeming with unbelieving kids. And the opportunities were tremendous to talk with them about this kind of thing. And, and, and our design early on was to prepare them for that kind of engagement with the world. And uh, so as we see those kinds of things, we're, we're hopeful. If you were to say, Art, do you think uh, Catherine and Jonathan are believers? I would say yes. I see evidences of grace that I'm thankful for them. But again, at the end of the day... Time and the devil will tell. Time and the devil will tell. Um, But a person authentically born again will continue. He will persevere. He will obey. He will prove faithful. It's the difference, beloved, between Judas and Peter. We've talked about that in recent days. Okay, last question. Uh, Turn to 1 John. 1 John chapter 2. Please explain, Missy, we can sing right now or I can talk for 10 minutes. Okay, please explain limited atonement in light of 1 John 2.2. 2. It appears that Christ's propitiation is for all the world rather than for the elect. Okay, let me begin by saying there are many people who disagree with me. There are many fine people, far more intelligent than me, that would disagree with me at this point, okay? So we're not going to lose sleep over this, but what I'm going to try and do is be as honest with the text as I can. Okay? Don't forget, you've already heard me say the death of Jesus Christ is sufficient for a billion worlds of sinners if that's who God wants to save. The question is, what's God's intent? So let me begin by putting in the form of a syllogism. Major premise, minor premise, conclusion. Major premise, Christ's death inherently saves. Minor premise, not all are saved. Conclusion, therefore Christ did not die for all. Now, to deny the conclusion means that one of the premises, either the major premise or the minor premise, is an error. No evangelical on the planet, I think, would deny the second premise, that not all are saved. I don't think you can be a universalist and an evangelical. And so they are forced to deny the major premise, the first premise, that Christ's death inherently saves. And so in seeking to determine God's intention in the atonement, the key question is this. Since all are not saved, what do the scriptures allow us to diminish, beloved? The quality or the quantity of the atonement? D.D. E. warfield says the things we have come to choose the things we have to choose between are an atonement of high value or an atonement of wide extension the two cannot go together now let's read the first two verses my little children I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now the issue here is what does John mean by the phrase the whole world? And what does John mean by the phrase or the word propitiation? The term propitiation, elasmos, means to turn away the wrath of God. To turn away the wrath of God. Here the NIV does us a tremendous disservice because it translates this atoning sacrifice, which says nothing about satisfying the wrath of God. Now, if the quantity of the whole world means all without exception, that is, every person who has ever lived, does live, or ever will live, then the quality of propitiation cannot mean to turn away the wrath of God against sin, to satisfy God's wrath against sin, because all would be saved. It can only mean to potentially turn God's wrath away. On the other hand, if the quality of propitiation denotes the satisfaction of God's justice so that God's holy wrath really is actually turned away, then this propitiation cannot be for the non-elect. So look at this, friends. Does this sound to you like potential or actual? What What does it sound like? He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Does that sound potential or actual? It's the quality-quantity problem, you see? If the quantity of the whole world includes all without exception, then we are forced to maintain a watered-down meaning of propitiation. But if propitiation actually denotes satisfaction of God's justice, then the whole world needs to be understood in some way other than all without exception. And so I now ask you to consider three simple facts essential to the text here. Number one, John's use of the word world in his inspired writings. John uses the term cosmos 106 times in Art and Gingrich, considered by most to be the definitive Greek lexicon. He says that only on five occasions does John use this word to mean all without exception, and even these five are debatable. You say, well, Art, so then how can we rightly determine what John means by the term world in any particular passage? And the answer is, we search the context for interpretive clues. We never say, this is what the, world al- this is what the word always means, and then we reinterpret everything else by virtue of it. We allow the context to determine the meaning of that word. Okay? So, how does John use the word world? World? Well, let's look. Chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world. Does this mean every person without exception? If anyone loves the world, does this mean all people without exception? The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desire of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions, is not from the Father but is from the world. Does the world here mean all people without exception? No. Chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Does world mean here every person without exception? No. Verse 13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Is this a reference to all people without exception? No. Let's let John interpret himself, shall we? Chapter 4, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Is that a reference to every person without exception? No. Verse 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world they are from the world therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them is this a reference to all people without exception no verse 9 in this the love of god was made manifest among us that god sent his only son into the world is that a reference to every person without exception verse 17 i just want you to know i'm trying to be exhaustive here By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. Is this a reference to all people without exception? Chapter 5, verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Is this a reference to every person without exception? Let me ask you this. Does most of the uses of the word world mean all people without exception? No. Do half of them refer to all people without exception? No. You say, well, Art, that doesn't mean that John isn't using it that way here in 1 John 2. You're right. But it certainly ought to bring a halt to any quick assumptions that the term world always means all all people without exception. Don't go there. In the pre-scientific era of the Bible, universal terms are rarely used to speak universally. Let the Bible writers interpret themselves. Let John tell you what he means. Point two. When speaking of this propitiation, please notice Jesus uses the present tense. Look at it now. Back to 1 John 2. He is the propitiation for our sin. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is presently our satisfaction with the Father. He is not potentially our satisfaction. He is our satisfaction, which raises a significant problem for the unlimited atonement people. If the hour refers to the Christians of John's day, and that the whole world is a reference to every other person who ever lives, they would have to conclude that what Jesus is for us and for those who never believe is not the same. I find this to be an uh, an argument that is impossible to overcome. For believers, Jesus really is their propitiation. For the non-believing world, he is their potential propitiation. He may one day become their propitiation. He may never become their propitiation. But how can John use the word is with two different meanings at the same time? Moreover, please take note of that little phrase, but also... He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That means that whatever Jesus is for the group referred to as our, he is also for this group referred to as the whole world. Not potentially, not sometime in the future, he is presently our propitiation. He is presently the whole world's propitiation. And if he is the whole world's propitiation, and that means all without exception, then that means everybody's going to be saved. We're not dealing with theology here, friends. We're dealing with the exegesis of the text. Third, John's stated ministry is directed to Jews. Look at this now, guys. Look at this, and, and, and we'll, we'll finish huh, here. But, but, but this is tremendously important, I think. When John uses the word our... He is the propitiation for our sins. To whom is he referring? Please do not read your name into this. I can't read Artaxerdea into this. Don't be so self-absorbed. Who is the R? You weren't born then. He didn't know you. To whom does this hour refer? First and foremost, it refers to the apostles. It's a reference to the apostolic Christians, all of whom were Jews. Look at verse 1. It'll be very odd. Who is this hour? Who's this hour? Verse 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Have you seen Jesus Christ? I don't think so. Which we looked upon. Have you looked upon Jesus Christ? Which we have touched. Have you touched Jesus Christ? Secondly, friends, please keep in mind that according to the Apostle Paul, John's divinely appointed apostolic ministry, along with Peter and James, was directed toward Jews. Read Galatians chapter 2. Paul says, my ministry is to the uncircumcised. Peter's ministry is to the circumcised, right along with John. John's ministry is to Jews. Paul's ministry is to Gentiles. Now, with that in mind, keep your finger here. Don't lose this place. And turn to John chapter 11. You've got to look at both places at the same time. The corresponding parallels between the gospel of John and the first epistle to John are astounding. The common themes, the common phrases. And so let me just show you one example of this. I want you to notice the parallels between 1 John 2.2. And John eleven verses fifty one and fifty two. In first John two, two, he is the propitiation for our sins. I take this to be Jewish believers. Now look at John eleven, fifty-one. What's going on here in John eleven? Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. The Jewish leadership goes absolutely bonkers. Caiaphas calls an emergency meeting and he says, you guys have been blowing it from the beginning. Let me tell you what we need to do. Verse 50, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now watch. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. What nation? Jewish nation. Look back at First John two two. He's the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only. Stop right there. Go back to John eleven fifty two. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only. Back to 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Back to John eleven fifty two, 52. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. He's going to give his life for the children of God. He's going to give his life for the children of God scattered abroad. Jewish Gentile. Jewish Gentile. It's the very thing that Jesus says when he speaks of himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, other sheep outside of the boundaries of Judaism. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus Christ is not the Savior of all people without exception. He is the Savior of all people without distinction. Not just the Savior of the Jews, but the Savior of people from all races who will turn to him in faith. You understand, beloved, it is the very same thing we saw in Revelation chapter 5. People purchased by his blood, bought out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Not every tribe, tongue, people and nation people out of every tribe tongue people and nation he dies for all without distinction now are there secondary intentions associated with the atonement intentions short of propitiation redemption and reconciliation absolutely having been raised from the dead beloved Jesus Christ is now the universal Lord you know what that means every single blessing that is experienced by every person outside of hell, what we would call common grace, is a consequence of his redemptive accomplishments. Every blessing, including every breath that an unbeliever draws this side of hell is an expression of God's grace. And on what basis can God give him grace? on the basis of the fact that Jesus purchased it for them on the cross. That's the only way God can give any grace to someone who's undeserving. Otherwise, his justice is compromised. So once again, his death is sufficient to save a billion worlds of sinners. The only question is, what was God's saving intention to make salvation possible to all? Or actual for some? So I'm very comfortable saying this. The atonement is sufficient for all, efficient for the elect. So what we say is to all people, you come, 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 trust in Christ, rest in his work on the cross, and you will be forgiven. You will be saved. You can say to your neighbor, Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of all people who come to believe in him. That's what John 3.16 means. For God so loved the world, God loved the world in this manner, that whoever believes in Him should have eternal life. That's why God gave His Son. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Why? So that those who would believe in Him would have eternal life. He died for those who would come to believe. That's what John 3.16 says. And that's what we declare all the time to people. Come to Jesus. His death is sufficient for you. Come, trust in Jesus. Your sins can be forgiven Right now. Okay? Sorry. Let's close in prayer, shall we? And would you stand with me? We'll sing the doxology.